Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. Live from the Nordic Privacy Arena 2023 in Stockholm, Sweden, this is Serious Privacy, powered by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. <laughs> Sounds weird not to have the introducing music, right? <laughs> That's the guy that actually does the voiceover. It's my husband, so we brought him with us. So, And I promise all of you, I will try to stay still. How many out there actually listen to the podcast? That's quite a few hands. Okay, so y'all know how hard it is for me to stand still. Got it. All right, Paul, take us away. After around 175 recorded episodes, this is only the second episode we record in person. And then actually with such a great audience. Thank right? you all for being here this morning. You have heard me say it before, the Nordic Privacy Arena is one of my favorites on the conference calendar. We had a very interesting day yesterday uh, with lots of valuable insights from the Nordic regulators. Um, some tips on how to hack into each other's computers. We'll try that this afternoon. Um, <laughs> and of course, conversations about AI. And later today, we'll continue with that other staple on the conference agenda, international transfers. We'll the thingy? At, the thingy. The thingy. We'll look ahead at the GDPR review that's due next year. Um, but before we truly start today's agenda, let's summarize what happened yesterday. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal. And Vail Kamatil, Serious Privacy. Did I say that right? <laughs> I'm not sure it sounds good with a Southern accent, but he told me I had to try. No, uh, what do y'all think comes next? The unexpected question. So this time, I actually planned the unexpected question. Well, that's which, the first. Right? Yeah. And this way, we can get audience participation here. So yes, if you didn't realize this was an interactive session, this is an interactive session. So the unexpected question is, villains or heroes? Who's with heroes? Okay, okay. Who's with villains? I got a few peeps out there. I got to make sure I meet y'all. Villains rock. Okay. Now, the, cool, the funny thing is, I didn't ask you what about villains or heroes. You just committed to dressing your pet or your child or your boss in a villain or hero costume for Halloween. <laughs> okay. Take us away, Paul. What are we going to start with? Well, let's start with the role of the Data Protection Authority, because that was a big part of yesterday's agenda. And I was actually very impressed to see five leading women from the Nordic right? Data Protection Authorities here on stage um, being ever so transparent um, in not only telling what they are working on and how they are doing it, but also admitting their faults. Absolutely. And that was very inspiring to me as well. Did the women on stage not rock yesterday? Seriously? <laughs> I, I am very impressed, and I know that there was some comment going around LinkedIn, uh, the Nordic Privacy Arena, 
this particular person wasn't going to attend because the only speakers on stage were middle-aged, white-haired men. Sorry, I'll go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to turn your hair white in the next 10 years. But I haven't seen that. This is a very diverse audience, a very diverse panel, very diverse speakers. I mean, how fabulous is the audience even out here? I mean, I'm impressed. I'm glad I was here. It's a beautiful town. It's good that you came over. But when we talk about the data protection authorities, um, I think they can learn a lot from each other. And it seems that they are doing that here in, in the Nordics. If you also hear how frequently they meet to not just discuss, um, joint investigations or interpretation of the GDPR, but also just the approach. Right. I recall when I was working for the Dutch Data Protection Authority back in the days, there was a thing called the case handling workshop where people at staff level would meet and discuss common approaches. I think it still exists, um, but maybe it is not as effective anymore as it used to be. Um, but if you hear, for example, the uh, director of the Danish authority say, we have an average time to deal with complaints of 99 calendar days. days. And, and two then, to 300 breach reports a week. That's a lot. And if you at the same time you hear the Swedish uh, acting director say, well, we know we need to do better, um, it's clear that they can learn from each other and that yeah. they are learning from each other when making their plans. Right. I like the fact that they didn't seem to be very territorial of, oh, no, I'm not going to tell you my secret. I'm going to handle my caseload this way. You handle yours. Um, I really loved it. Some of the things that really stuck out, uh, stood out to me yesterday, that particular statements that I wrote down. Yes, I take notes. Um, particular statements I wrote down. So Anutalis, uh, the EDPB chair, actually said um, one thing that stood out to me, and it was a question about CSAM, so child sexual abuse material online. When solving problems, don't create a bigger one. I mean, how profound is that for what we do? No matter what the new technology it is that we're looking at or the old technology we're trying to retrofit to fit into what we're doing, how important is it to keep in mind to not create bigger problems? Now, the bigger question there is, when do we ever not create a bigger problem? Well, I think that very nice matches the statement that Peter Fleischer from Google made uh, during one of the AI panels, because he said AI is too important not to regulate, Yes, but we also haven't (laughs) figured it out yet. Nobody disagrees with that statement. Nobody does. But I mean, that also shows that we need to continue that conversation. And that is another point that really stood out to me yesterday um, is the outreach that data protection authorities do to society, to companies. I very much like um, the Norwegian approach that was discussed yesterday, um, where they have had roundtables across the Mm -hmm. country with 160 organizations from both the public and the private sector. Um, actually talking about them, not just um, what they are working on and how GDPR works for them or not, uh, but also what they would like the Data Protection Authority to focus on. And if they were the Data Protection Authority, what would they actually do? And what would they do? That helps to, of course, create uh, your priorities for the next couple of years. And they also use it to push the ministry to provide more resources, which I think is very smart. I think that came through very clearly yesterday. We have this big law that the rest of the world, in case y'all hadn't figured it out, I'm from uh, the United States, very particular, the southern part of the United States where we talk really funny. And it was interesting to me to hear that, you know, outside Europe, everyone has this idea that privacy rules all here. There is nothing but privacy. There's no unfair competition. There's no monopolies. There's no crime. There's no shootings. There's only privacy. Welcome to Sweden. Right? (laughs) 
I actually like the fact my husband, uh, our our introduction guy, actually pointed out yesterday that there's no big trucks. There's no pickup trucks. There's no dualies. There's no diesel sounds or noise or anything. There's no people cussing each other out and making weird symbols as they walk down the road. It's very peaceful. I feel weird. <laughs> well, I mean, you are Southern American, so... <laughs> He did point out to me that I probably like it so much because it's quiet, because people aren't chit-chatting like they do on the streets of New York and talking to everyone as they walk down the street. I mean, how many times did I see a really cute dog yesterday and the owner's like, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's quiet. I love it. And I'm so introverted that that appeals to me. But anyway, let's get back so, to the conference. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll hear more about the U.S. perspective later today when no, Odia Kagan comes on stage. Yes. Um, I'm looking about forward the to that. But um, when you give your U.S. perspective on the GDPR, I mean, we'll, we'll discuss this afternoon, the evaluation uh, of the GDPR. With your U.S. hat, what do we need to do different here in Europe? Everything. Okay. No, no, seriously, y'all are doing the right thing here. I was in conversation with someone yesterday about this as well, that in the United States, you have to use fear. Um, the, the chief financial officers over there, the chief executive officers over there, they don't listen to it being a fundamental human right, which I guess that's up in the air for the UK. Uh, but they don't listen to it's a human right. This is a basic thing that people are entitled to. If you want them to change their practices and you want them to take certain actions, you have to use fear to do so. And it's interesting because quite often and through the years of 2016, 2019, I worked as a consultant actually helping companies ramp up to the GDPR. Most of them didn't take it seriously. Let's be honest. Do they do now? And Kind of, sort of. They'd like to see a whole lot more enforcement on companies other than the mega, mega, mega ones that they can, you know, put in a box and say, that's not us. We're not the big social media company. We're not the big search engine. Um, they don't see a lot happening to companies their size, your, your average company. And so if you don't use fear to scare them straight, they're really not going to pay a lot of attention. I'm sorry. Now that we have uh, omnibus privacy laws passing in the states over there, so we've got five states with omnibus privacy laws here. Does anybody can mention who they are? Yeah, see? Um, but it's a big deal for us in the United States. So we've got California, Utah, Virginia, Connecticut, and Colorado. We had seven other states pass omnibus privacy laws this year. So they'll come into effect sometime 2024, 2025. We have other states regulating very unique pieces of the law. And so those they're paying attention to because those states will sue them. The people will take them to court under a private right of action. I don't think any other country in the world is litigious as the United States. True. And so that is what scares them straight is fear. It is not basic respect for an individual. Whenever I do talk to a company about putting certain things in place, their question is, what's the risk? Well, the risk is you're not going to be able to do business in Europe. They're like, yeah, 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 but how enforcement heavy are the agencies? Well, it takes a few years to do an event. Oh, so it's not really a risk right now. Like, well, you're a B2C company. You're working with consumers. Consumers are going to complain. Now, one thing I have learned is consumers on the ground here are like the consumers in the United States. They really don't understand privacy either. They're just going to throw it at you if they get mad at you and, oh, yeah, you violated my privacy rights. 
Um, in the United States, that means nothing. We don't have an omnibus federal law. They're not going to get anything under the law. So it's not really a big deal to them, but they threaten it whenever they get upset as a consumer. So that's my perspective on the GDPR is okay. come so if on, I, if, I, if I translate your five-minute rant into <laughs> an actual recommendation for the European <laughs> Commission on what to change in the GDPR. Enforcement, 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 and then add some enforcement and enforcement on top of it. Well, but moreover add some publication to that so that people yes. actually understand what it is that the data protection are doing, yes. data protection authorities are doing, and not just enforcing behind the scenes, but actually right. telling, this is what we've done, yes. this is what happened. Making it public, making the decisions public, making the settlements public about what logic went into it, what fed into it, what made the decision go one way versus another would be really helpful to be able to tell um, American businesses, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. When they hear that it takes 99 days to, you know, investigate a complaint, they're like, yeah, whatever. Now, to be honest, under HIPAA, uh, it takes two years to get a complaint to be heard. So 99 days is nothing. No, that's absolutely true. And then I hear some people here in the room, in, including um, uh, Rie Valle and uh, Ole Peterson, say, well, but also please translate those decisions into English. Oh, and yes, that would be nice. them in the native languages, <laughs> uh, because that also makes it a lot easier for us to summarize them and educate our audiences on, uh, on, on what needs to be done and yeah, what, Google, what lessons learned there are. Google AI Translate isn't that good yet. Well, I mean, Peter said yesterday, Peter Fleischer, that uh, Swedish to English and vice versa would be okay, but if you bring in Urdu and Japanese into that right. same mix, it might become more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So what were some other things that stood out to you? I mean, I took a lot of notes here. I know you did too. Yeah, for me, the uh, the, the, the contribution from Lina Kohl from the Norwegian DPA uh, really resonated with me. Practitioner. Uh, used to be a practitioner, uh, went to the supervisory authority. I've, got a, I've of course, made um, my path in the other direction and slightly moving back now into the regulatory community. Um, but looking at data protection from all those different angles, I think right. is very powerful. Um, and I congratulate the Norwegian DPA actually for, yes. for having that uh, within their midst, because it is so important that um, the DPA is not just that big ivory tower right. looking at the world in perfection, saying this is how it should work which is, of course, also part of their role, but also actually giving practical tips that people can work with. Oh, I, yeah. also, I also always believed that there was no such thing as the ivory tower while I was working <laughs> at the Dutch GPA, um, that the advice that we were giving was to the point, was useful for society. Right. And only once I came down the ivory tower, I could see it. Yeah. Um, and I think that is, that, that, that is a real challenge. Um, Yes, the opinions of the European Data Protection Board are complex, they are lengthy, um, not all the uh, examples that in, are in there um, are ever so useful. But I read every single word. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> every word. Maybe that's word. also because we have the misconception on what these opinions are intended for. Right. They are not intended for us, for the general audience, even though we may think so. They are intended for themselves to uh, get less disagreement and less urgency procedures and, and less dispute resolution <laughs> mechanisms um, when enforcing the GDPR. That is the main aim of those opinions. Yeah. But it would be nice if they would also start drafting some overlays to, that, to those opinions saying, well, this is what it means for you in the private sector. I like this how you slide it... that in so subtly. <laughs> <laughs> he 
he's he's really good with it. Just slides Are you now it right accusing in. me of being subtle, Seven? Not not at all. Right. I'm I'm being sarcastic. Right. It's okay. <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes here. But no, seriously, uh, you bring out a really good point. Having a practitioner that becomes a regulator is valuable, incredibly valuable. Um, because how often do we have regulators that expect us to do certain things or act certain ways or respond in a certain manner? And it's just not practical. It's not something you can actually do on a practical level. And so having uh, a practitioner in that regulatory uh, seat actually makes a lot of sense because now she can take that perspective of, oh, well, companies actually can't do that. That's not the way it works. Let's find a way that that does slide into how it works. I really like that. And I liked here that the panel of the DPAs actually talk about working together and cooperating and learning from each other. I did have to go up and ask, what the heck is a regulatory sandbox? We keep hearing about it. It's not like in the in the technology development world, you have a sandbox you get to go play in and well, and play. I mean, no. if you if you if you pass a law or a regulation, it's it's that's the antithesis of a sandbox. Uh, but it made a lot of sense to me when they explained it to me that these are not quite consultations, but very much not one on ones. These are an area where companies, uh, individuals can come, they pull together, they talk, they figure out what it is about a particular issue. AI, I think, was their first one. Or am I wrong? And AI is the second one coming up. It might be. Um, But it's interesting to do that. That way, the regulators can understand what questions and problems and issues the public or the companies are working with. And yes, there's a distinction between the companies and the public. Thank you, Alex. Um, what issues they're wrestling with, and then what do the regulators need to understand when they're looking at regulating these issues? And the FTC in the United States does a lot. They do their traveling roadshows, so it's a lot similar to that. Very successful over there. Uh, the traveling roadshows with the FTC, and the FTC is the one that does it more often, um, is very successful. They actually learn from the industry, and then the regulators learn from the people. Mm-hmm. So it's really good to do that. So I was very excited to hear it, very excited to see that that idea is sharing across other nations as well. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that is a successful regulatory sandbox experiment. I really like it. I like the way it sounds. Maybe I'm naive and I'm missing some of the nuances to it, but I like it. Well, I'm pretty s- pessimistic usually. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a thing that we that we see more frequently. I think the, the British are using it. I believe the French are using it now. Also, some of the Nordics. So um, let's see what it will bring in in the next couple of years and whether it has an effect and, and should be something to be embraced right. by more data protection authorities around the European Union and maybe even uh, around the globe. Around the globe, I like. Wouldn't that. it be nice to have a regulatory sandbox with the CAC in China? Wouldn't though. So that they can actually explain to you before you start doing something how PIPL should actually work. I love that you say PIPL. Yeah, just for you. Just for this <laughs> I do not believe in the pipple. It sounds like some, I don't know, hairy pimple on someone's little butt or something. I don't like and then it. We'll, so then PIPL. let's talk about the HIPPA that you know as HIPAA. <laughs> yes, I'm rolling my eyes at him again. But no, seriously, it is true because in China... What kind of insight do we have? I mean, let's look at the opposite side of the world there. Uh, we don't have insight. They, I heard that in this past year, they're, they're starting to show up on businesses unannounced, just knock on the door and go, hi, we're here to give you some advice and guidance on your implementation of the PIPL. And uh, 
they have no warning. And then they give them six months to follow their advice and guidance. And then they come back just to check up and see how they're doing. I mean, good Lord, help us. Well, that's at least better than the inspections that the French EPA would do, because they would also come in on a Monday morning and say, hi, we're here for an inspection. You have your agenda (laughs) for the next two days, but then you don't get six months to repair what's wrong. They just fine you. Yeah. Well, but I mean, that reminds me of the surveys uh, that the DPAs are sending out. And I understand that all of them are sending out different kinds. And it's kind of an effort now to bring all the questionnaires together to ask, what are the DPOs doing? What are their qualifications? What are their duties? Who do they report to? Uh, different things like that, which I find fascinating. Yeah, so, so do I. And actually, I checked again yesterday. Did, to see if you were qualified? Well, no, to see if we ever received that questionnaire from the Dutch Data Protection Authority. Because it might have gone to the company, not you. Yeah, but we never received it. So um, I'm not sure what the Dutch are doing as part of this exercise. They I may be that assuming that you're not qualified. Maybe, but I mean, we have a registered DPO, so they should have received it. But um, I heard that here in Sweden, indeed, the letters were sent to the company, whereas in other jurisdictions... They were actually sent to the DPO or to both. Um, but nevertheless, I'm really looking forward to to the study that comes out at the end of this year, yeah. early next year, um, to tell us more, tell us DPOs more about how we should look at our role, what we should do, and what we should right. improve. Uh, oh, I think it's fabulous. What did you think about the conversation about certifications? Um, actually, that's part of the conversation I had on this stage last year, because I spoke about the role of the DPO um, a year ago here at the, uh, the Nordic Privacy Arena. Um, I don't think there is a need for an overarching European certification for a data protection officer because the national context and also the company context will always be um, very important. Um, But I do believe there is a need for education. Um, One of the reasons why I'm still involved in in teaching data protection law as part of a DPO training course um, because... It is not something you can just do. You can read the law and then you know what you need to do when you. Why not? When you the GDPR is so simple to understand. Of course, but applying it in practice is is uh, not quite so different. much. No, and just understanding how you should prioritize mm-hmm. um, is already a, a fairly big challenge. Do I start with my processing activities registered? Do I start assessing my marketing department's approach to newsletters and cookies? Um, do I take an overall company risk assessment first? Um, yes to are, all. Yes to all, but you cannot do all at the same time. Right. And then you also need to deal with some day-to-day fires, questions from your customer service team, and, and many other things that will happen no matter what. Um, and as our dear friend Amrod Delil has explained to me, um, when I talked to her, hey, I'm going in-house, what recommendation do you have? She said, you don't have priorities You have one priority, and that is all you can afford in your day-to-day work because the rest of your time will be filled with urgent questions. I find it fascinating that Paul did the exact opposite and went from a regulator to becoming a practitioner. I have to tell you, that year on the podcast was a lot of fun because now all of these things as a regulator, he was telling companies they had to do. Now he's in-house going, oh, good God, we can't do that. It's not practical. I can't have 10 priorities but let me turn the question around to you then. So working with your business in-house, is it as challenging as it is for us in the U.S.? Well, I've never worked in-house as a data protection lawyer in the U.S., so I can't possibly comment. But it is challenging. Yeah. That, that I'm happily uh, admitting because there is a lot that needs to be done. And even though the company when I joined had a fairly high level of, uh, of compliance already, 
um, and a good understanding of what needed to be done and uh, a fairly decent risk appetite, there's always things that could be better. And yes, I have the disadvantage that I bring my regulatory perspective to the table as well. So I also need to have discussions with myself, uh, starting to create a split personality, I guess. He's been on, working with me way too long. <laughs> uh, but having those discussions with myself on um, what I think is in the best interest of our users, what is in the best interest of the company, um, and what my fundamentalist heart would do. Right. Because I am still that fundamentalist to the core, but I also see and understand that not every company can be as fundamentalist as maybe right. I would have been in my regulatory days. And I know that some advisors, including some in this room, um, have very staunch views and won't work for a company if they cannot keep their activist position. Um, I'm looking at you, Alex Hanf, in the back of the room. Um, and that works for some, but that doesn't work for everyone and that right. doesn't work for every company. And then you also um, need to have that conversation with yourself. Can I defend this in public? Can I defend this to myself? <laughs> um, and so far, the answer has been yes. And I I'm want, really I enjoying also those discussions uh, with my colleagues and with myself. Yes, he likes those discussions. That's one reason we started the podcast, which was really interesting. I will say I like that... Uh, one time I told uh, a group of salespeople they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing with data. And, oh gosh, I'll even tell the story. So they, they sold to doctors. They could not sell to nurses. They could not sell to office managers. They could only sell to doctors. And yet they were collecting gender on their clients. And I asked them why. I'm like, you're not sending like pink and blue email messages, are you? What's the deal here? And they're like, no, we need to know what to call them, Mr. or Mrs. I'm like, you call them doctor. <laughs> why do you need gender? I said, I cannot defend that in court. And they said, sure you can, Kay. We have faith in you. That's not the point. <laughs> it's not us whether or not we're good enough to defend. It's on the company to figure out because what I quite often get from people is, how does an attorney, or I, I was a nurse, how did a nurse become an attorney? Aren't those diametrically opposed? It's not. To me, privacy, data protection is a helping field. We are here to help the average person on the street keep their data safe, right? That's our job. And as long as you can protect the company by protecting the people, then you're doing your job. But our job is to protect the people. And that resonates with me. Here, here. So, okay, before we wrap up, maybe... Today? Maybe can you give a, a, a few sentences on why we actually started doing a privacy podcast? Why is a privacy why podcast Why did important? we start doing a privacy podcast? <laughs> no, seriously, I, had, I was at TrustArc and I had been telling my bosses we needed to do a podcast. I said, we need to get information out there that has nothing to do with selling an, a widget or a software. We need to just get the information out there to other professionals like ourselves or the consumers who want to learn more about privacy. I haven't met many of them, to be frank. But to other professionals who are wrestling with these same issues, and we can just speak about them openly. Uh, sometimes I do have to disclaim very strongly this is not my company. Paul was doing the same thing at Nimity, trying to start a podcast and then TrustArc bought Nimity, which thank God for me because I loved Nimity and I hated competing. And so he and I met in January of 2019, 2020. 2020. And I didn't know who this guy was walking around. I didn't around. know who she was. 
It's like walking around like he owns the place. And I'm like, I own this place. And uh, it turns out we both wanted to do a podcast. And this was in January. And I said, great, let's launch it on Data Privacy Day or Data Protection Day uh, on January 28th. And uh, Paul's like, we can't do that. That's three weeks away. Let's launch it in March on March 15th. Our, de- our department was called Privacy Intelligence. So Pi Day, March 15th. Made perfect sense. And then the weekend of January 28th, on Thursday, our marketing department called and said, by the way, y'all, we have nothing planned for Data Privacy, Data Protection Day. Can y'all launch the podcast? So he went from not wanting three weeks to we needed to do it in three days. And then we didn't see each other until IAPP earlier this year. So this entire time, we've become best friends. Yep. And the funny thing is, this very first episode of Serious Privacy was recorded here in the Nordics. Uh, because I was on vacation in Tromsø at the time in northern Norway, um, and that's where the first episode started. So while wrapping up, uh, first of all, a big shout out to all the other privacy podcasts. Yes, because yes. There are quite a few, uh, including here in the room, the Grumpy GDPR from Riewala uh, and Data Ministeriet from Filip uh, uh, Jonsen uh, and uh, Anders Backstrom. Um, so thank you all for doing also for great work. work. Uh, we're not competitors. We're friends. We're partners yep. uh, in crime. And then let's wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our episodes, rate and review us on your favorite podcast app or on the favorite podcast platform, or just give us a round of applause when we're done today. Um, you'll find Kay on social media as Heart of Privacy, myself as Europol B. And join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions.